Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Philippians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own one, know that we have some on the table in the back of the foyer. Please grab one of those. Let that be our gift to you. Philippians chapter 4. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. Uh, utilize the table of contents. The Bible is a big book with lots of pages, and so it's very helpful to utilize that to navigate our way through the Scriptures. Find your way to Philippians chapter 4. When you get there, put your finger on verse 10. That's where we'll pick up reading in a few moments. Years ago, my dad was diagnosed with the dreaded RLS. I don't know if you know what RLS is, but it's restless leg syndrome. And it basically means that my dad's legs tingle constantly. There's a burning sensation in his legs that seems to be insatiable. And he'll come home from work and he'll try to find some rest and, and relax in the room. And he has a hard time because by that point in the day, his legs will be just on fire. And so he'll lie in the recliner, prop his legs up, lean back. And that'll help for a little while. But eventually, he'll have to change positions in the room. He'll have to get out of that chair, go to the couch, lay down on the couch and put his legs up on the arm of the couch to elevate it above his heart to get some different type of circulation. And that'll help for a little while as well. But eventually that too um, doesn't work entirely. And then he'll stand up and he'll move to the middle of the room and he'll just start doing an exercise routine. He'll just start squatting up and down in the middle of the living room doing a number of squats. And then eventually he'll lay down on the floor and just kind of curl his legs back up into his chest, distorting and contorting his body into position. I never thought he could get into at his age. But as I watched my father kind of go through this routine, uh, even when he came to visit us just recently, when I see how restless his legs are, I can't help but consider how restless my soul is at times. I can't help but consider how restless so many of our souls are at times as we struggle with a tingle in the soul, a burning in the soul, and we distort and contort our lives in all types of ways in order to get that tingle or to get that burning to die down, to find some semblance of rest and peace, some semblance of what is called contentment. You see, discontentment is one of the most frustrating aspects of the fallen human condition of knowing that there is a tingle in the soul that we are so seeking desperately to satisfy and so many times we will again distort and contort our lives in ways to bring about some sense of peace some sense of rest and yet it seems all the positions that we find ourselves in as we journey through this world just can't cut it they can't really do for us what we hope they would do for us. You see, contentment is one of those things that Jeremiah Burroughs would describe in the 16th century as a rare jewel. It is an uncommon grace. And, and the reason why I think it is so rare and the reason why I think, think it is so common is because we do not consider what contentment is and how contentment is to be cultivated in our lives. So we end up living our lives, constantly looking for the next thing to bring us peace, constantly looking for what's coming around the corner to enhance our joy or to satisfy our souls. We, we look into the future constantly and we fail to live in the moment. It is not unlike what the French, French philosopher Voltaire describes when he says, you know, as human beings, we do, we, we do not live we do not know how to live in the moment. Instead, we, all, we are always in expectation of living. We're always looking for something else to come our way. We're looking for the next season, and we can't find contentment in the present tense, contentment in real time. 
It's similar to a poem that I came across this past week, and I'll share it with you. Perhaps it, you can identify with it. The poem reads, it was, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never quite got what I wanted. That's why discontentment is so frustrating. It robs us of life. It robs us of joy. It hinders us from sinking into that which is available to us in Christ, in the gospel. You see, finding rest for the soul, cultivating contentment in Christ is the concern of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. So we'll read it for you and just listen to how Paul talks about contentment in relation to various experiences he has in this world. Listen, beginning of verse 10. If you remember, Paul is writing these words from a prison cell, uncertain about his future. He may not get out. He may be put to death. Who knows at this point? And so he's writing these words in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, referring to the church at Philippi. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have, get this, learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. He's found this rare jewel. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have, learned that the sec- I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Cultivating contentment is the concern of this passage. And Paul is talking about something that he has learned, something that he has discovered, something that he has come to realize and experience in his soul, even in the midst of his sitting in a prison cell with a future that is so uncertain in front of him. But before we just step in to figure out, okay, what is it that Paul learned? What, what is this type of contentment that he's referring to? You and I got to step back and just think for a moment, you know, as we consider how discontent our lives are at times, and we consider how our souls are oftentimes tingling, we live in a world and a culture that is not without its remedies. We are oftentimes given remedies for this condition. And just to put a couple of those remedies into a couple of categories for us, there are some who say if you really want to find contentment, if you really want to find peace or rest, then what you need is more. What you need is more. You need more money. You need more friends, you need more vacations, you need more technologies, you need more sex, you need more of this, more of that, or the other. It's what might be described as the materialistic approach to contentment, saying the materialist. If I'm going to cultivate contentment, I need more. More of whatever it is that your heart is desiring, that your heart is longing for, that your heart is tempted to believe that if I get more of that, then I'll be good. It's not unlike that proverb of the rich man who was asked, hey, how much more money until you get enough? And he answers the question, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. 
This is what our soul does when we try to apply that remedy and trying to find contentment of wanting just a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. So that's one category that people turn to sometimes in an effort to find contentment and rest and peace in this life. And, but then there's another category. It's not so much the materialistic view. It might be described as the minimalistic approach, the minimalist approach. Instead of saying what our heart needs to cultivate contentment is more, instead it's what my heart needs to be content is less. I want less responsibilities. I want less obligations. I want less areas that can be that cause stress in my life. So I want to reduce some of those types of things. And so the answer then is not so much found in more, it is found in less. Two completely different approaches to the same problem. Oddly enough, I was reading this past week and discovered that this was the Unabomber's approach back in the day. One of the Unabomber's frustrations with our culture was that he had decided that all of the discontent that pervades modern culture in our context is the result of um, all these technological advances. It is the result of the American prosperity that has overcomplicated life. And so we need to simplify things. We need to minimize things. And that is an approach that some people take in order to deal with their discontentment. So some say that the solution is to get more. Others say that the solution is to get less. I don't know which direction your heart is tempted to slide in in this direction, but I, in this moment. But I do want to encourage you with what Paul is saying in this text. Because what Paul is saying about contentment in this passage is that the key to cultivating contentment isn't found in getting more. It isn't found in getting less. The key to contentment is found in Christ. That's a third category. That's a third approach. So it's not in more. It's not in less. It is in Christ. This is essentially what he is going after in this story. See, Paul had discovered, he had learned in a myriad of ways that in having Christ, he actually had everything. He discovered that contentment wasn't the result of where he is at in this world, but in who he's in, who he's in relationship with. This Savior that he knows, this Savior that he loves, this Savior who knows him, who loves him, who's using him in this world. This is where he's discovered contentment to be found. But if we're going to say that, if we're going to say we're not going to go the more route, we're not going to go the less route, we're going to go in Christ route. If, if that's the key to cultivating contentment, then we also need to understand that in order to cultivate that contentment, we need to learn how to do so. He says this type of contentment in Christ, it must be learned. This is why he refers to the fact that he has learned this lesson. He has learned this reality in verse 11 and again in verse 12. In other words, there is no get content quick scheme that you can apply to your life. And there is no red pill or blue pill that you can swallow in order to find yourself content. There's no spiritual software that you can download onto the hard drive of your soul to instantaneously and to immediately be a contented person in Christ. No, this is something that you have to learn. This is something that must be cultivated. In order to do that, you need two things. You need time and experience. In order to cultivate contentment in Christ, in order to shake the more category and to shake the less category to find contentment in Christ, you need time and experience. Time and experience, because what time and experience does for us in the world that is, is it teaches us something about life that we have to wrap our minds around. And you will discover that the longer you live, 
And you will discover that the more experiences you have in this world, that life is a journey of contrasts. The one thing consistent about life in a fallen world is change. One thing that is consistent about life in a world such as this is that what situation you are in now, it's going to change. Life is a journey of contrasts. Time and experience will teach you that, will reveal that to you. And so what that does, once you begin to see that life is a journey of contrasts, it makes no sense for you to tether your contentment to that which is changeable or to tether your contentment to that which can be taken away from you. It makes no sense to do that. And so Paul would point out these contrasts in this passage. Notice the contrasts in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low. That means I know what life is like when it goes really bad. I know how to be brought low, but he also says, I know how to abound. I know what life is like when things are going really good. He's been in both worlds, and chances are you have been in both worlds to some degree as well. But then he would go on to explore these contrasts. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. There it is. Abundance and need. Life is a journey of contrast. Time and experience will reveal that to us as it has revealed it to Paul and Paul, in the process, has learned to not tether his contentment to that which is changeable, but tether his contentment to Christ, that the solution isn't about more, it isn't about less. It isn't about gain, it isn't about loss. The solution to our discontent is to submerge ourselves in relationship with Christ. And so let me identify a few of the things that he seems to have learned this. There's a few fronts that surface in this passage of, of where he learned contentment and where his contentment is kind of uh, taking him to school, so to speak. Three schools in which he learned contentment. The first school had to do with the church, the school of his relationship with the church at Philippi. Notice what goes down in verse 10. In verse 10, he talks about the concern that they had for him and the compassion that they showed to him. Listen to what he says again. He says, you know, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. Notice what he says. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, he knew that the church loved him. But at some point in time, there was a delay between the church actualizing that love in a tangible way while he was in prison. But what Paul didn't do, he didn't allow his heart to go to a bitter place with regards to the church at Philippi. He didn't interpret the delay in their coming to his aid as a lack of concern. He says, no, it wasn't that you lacked concern or that you lacked a desire to care for me while I'm in prison, sending Epaphroditus to bring this food and to bring these supplies to me. What you lacked was opportunity. You needed a guy like Epaphroditus to step up. And when that opportunity came up, you came to my aid. You showed me love. You showed me concern. And and he's talking about his relationship with them. And then he even says in verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. In other words, contentment in Christ does not mean you refuse help from the church. You never want to get to a position where you say, well, if I'm content in Christ, I don't really need other people. I don't need other people to come to my aid. I don't need other people to show me concern and compassion and to love me in tangible ways. Contentment in Christ does not mean you refuse help and concern and compassion from the body of Christ. 
It just means that when you receive that care, when you receive that compassion, you do so with a heart of gratitude and not a heart of entitlement. You see, it would have been very easy for heart, Paul's heart to harden towards the church due to the, lay, to the delay in their opportunity. But at Paul, what does he do? He assumes the best of the church. He doesn't assume the worst of the church of Philippi. He assumes, look, I know you love me. I have a history with you. I know you care for me. And he's assuming the best in them so that when the delay happened from the aid coming to him, when the opportunity wasn't there for them to help him out, he didn't get jaded. He was content in Christ that allowed him to receive their that allowed him to receive their concern to receive their aid in a healthy kind of way, which is why he would say what he says in the very next verse, verse eleven. It's a very strange thing that Paul would express this gratitude to the church for coming to help him. But then, what does he say next? He says, "Not that I'm speaking of being in need." Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you know. It's cool that uh, I'm very grateful that you have helped me out, but I want you to know even if you hadn't, I still would have been good. Because my deepest needs have been met in Christ. And while I'm in prison, Jesus is with me. While I have an uncertain future in front of me, Jesus has got me. So he's not even speaking as though he's in real need. And so he's grateful, but he's not entitled to the church's help. He understands that the church loves them, loves him, and he wants to receive help and aid and support from them, but he's not going to receive it in a way that would somehow diminish the satisfaction that Christ is for him in his situation. So it's a remarkable school that he's learning contentment in. He's learning contentment in the context of community, thinking about the relationship he has with the church and receiving support from them, but ultimately recognizing, look, if they hadn't come through for me, I still have Christ. So ultimately, I don't have, I don't have, my, my ultimate needs are met. So he learns from that school, so to speak. He learns from the school of, of the church or school of the community. But then he moves on. And the next two are probably uh, more prominent in verses 11, 12, and 13. That is, he learned contentment in the school of prosperity. In some way, shape, or form, Paul learned to be content even when he was enjoying prosperous circumstances. You notice this when he talks about uh, how, he learnt, how he knew how to abound and he knew how to, be, uh, to have plenty and abundance. In other words, sometimes when we think about the Apostle Paul, and we know he had a tough life, we know he endured a lot, but sometimes our profiles of Paul suggest that his life was characterized by unceasing adversity, that everything in his life was a problem. Or everything in his life was hard. But apparently he experienced prosperity at different stages and in different seasons as he journeyed with Jesus. Not every day was a bad day. Not every day was a hard day. Some days were marked by plenty. Some days were marked by abundance. Some days were marked by a, a good thing. Maybe as he's writing these words, he's thinking about his experience in Lydia's home. Lydia being the first believer in the city of Philippi, this young businesswoman who, or this uh, young professional who had this business that was very prosperous in that city. And she became a believer, opened up her home, began using her house in service of the church in that city. Maybe Paul's thinking fondly back to the times they shared meals together in her space. Maybe he's thinking about those moments where, he, where she might have gifted him with some of the supplies that she was making in her business so that he could use and be blessed by. Maybe, maybe he's thinking about his relationship with Lydia when he's wondering, you know, there were days when, I, when things were going pretty well for me. 
I've experienced prosperity. I've enjoyed prosperity. But notice what he's saying. I've learned to be content even in that moment. And this may be one of the more difficult lessons or less obvious lessons about contentment that you and I need to come around as we think about our culture and our context. We don't often think that we need to learn contentment in the school of prosperity because we think if things are going well, we think if we have an abundance, if we have all this stuff and we're enjoying life, then, then where, where does contentment really fall in that? And I would encourage us to consider some, some of the ways in which the scriptures talk about prosperity and really to think about some of the warnings that the scripture gives us about prosperity. You see, it's very clear that the longer you live, the more time and experience you get in this life, and and you find yourself in prosperous situations, if you pay attention to where your heart is going in that moment, you, you will likely discover that even in plenty, there's a sense of dissatisfaction remaining or lingering in your soul. There's a reason why Forbes magazine came out with a list of the most wealthy people in the world. And in this list, they were studying kind of their spending habits of the previous year. And what they discovered of the wealthiest people in the world was that they weren't spending their money. They were investing their money. But when the researcher kind of pressed into why they weren't spending their money, but they were investing their money, this was one of the things he discovered about several of the names on the list. They weren't spending their money. They were investing their money because, get this, they were dissatisfied with where they fall on the list. They wanted the next year, when that list comes out, they wanted their name to go up a few notches. Even in plenty, it's possible for our souls to be dissatisfied. Even when we're getting more, it's possible that that more isn't enough. And we say with the rich man in the proverb, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. In that perspective, that approach leads us in a dangerous direction. This is why Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he would make this statement, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This, this is all vanity. It's all futile. This is why Paul would say what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That is basic necessities. If, you, if you're not starving, you've got clothes, you can be content with those things. But listen to the warning. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare or a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced pierced themselves with many pangs. And perhaps as he was writing those words, he was thinking about a friend of his who in that same letter, 1 Timothy, he talks about how who who left him uh, as he was seeking to serve Jesus because his friend was so drawn to to the prosperity of the world. His soul was so discontent with where he was, he had to have more. So he bailed on Paul, went his own way. And Paul says they they have pierced themselves with many pangs. They've gotten themselves into lots of lots of trouble. This is the story of the rich young ruler. You know, the rich young ruler who approached Jesus, this young, wealthy, healthy, successful guy runs up to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a guy that if you're just looking at him from the outside, you would think he has everything, that there's no tingling in his soul. There's no burning in his heart. But yet something drove him to the feet of Jesus to ask that question. Only when he asked that question, He didn't like the answer. Jesus, after a couple of exchanges, he then says, okay, I want you to go sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. 
And when the man heard that, as Jesus was zeroing in on this idol, the fact that his heart was ensnared by his love for money and riches and wealth, it says that he turned away from Jesus and he walked away sad. He turned his back on the Savior and left sad because he wasn't willing to respond to the Savior's call on his life to go and give and to come and follow. And it is possible that when you, are, you and I are in prosperous circumstances and we find ourselves falling in love with the mores of this world, that, that it begins to get a hold of our hearts and we begin to cling to our prosperous circumstances. We begin to cling to our prosperous situations to the point that when Jesus calls us into another rhythm or calls us into a different style of life, we are too ensnared in that which we love about our prosperity that we cannot heed his call. And what happens is that discontent continues. That tangle continues to burn and to yearn within us. So Paul here is referring to this idea of prosperity. And he's saying, look, I've learned contentment and prosperity. I know what it means to to abound. I know what it means to be in a good situation. And I want you to know that being with Christ in a tough situation is better than being in a good situation without Jesus. He's saying, this is my contentment. This is the source of my life. I just want to be with Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart that the gospel is producing within us, a desire to be with Jesus regardless of where that may take us. So we don't want to be like the kid who's got his hand stuck in the cookie jar, whose hand is wrapped around the cookie, stuck. He can go free. He can go out. He just has to drop the cookie and do so. But I don't know if you've ever got your hand stuck in a cookie jar. Dropping a cookie, it sounds simple, but it's not easy. That's where the rich young ruler is, and that's what we do with our prosperity so often is that we cling to our prosperity. We hold on to these good things that we desire, that we think we need in order to be happy, that we can't drop them if Jesus says drop them, and we can't go where Jesus tells us to go and do what Jesus tells us to do. And so we want to drop the cookie. It's a simple but not easy dynamic, but if you and I, our learning contentment in the school of prosperity, it means that we're going to get to the point where we understand that, yes, we can enjoy our prosperity, but we're going to enjoy our prosperity with open hands. We're not going to enjoy our good season and our prosperity with clenched fists. We're not going to cling to them because to cling to our prosperity is death for us. It is soul strangling and soul suffocating. We're going to open our hands. We're going to learn contentment by enjoying prosperity this way, saying, Jesus, everything that I have is yours. Everything that I have evidences your grace and your goodness towards me in Jesus. So, so I thank you for them, and I pray that you do with my prosperity what you desire. And so if that means God puts you in a position of influence with lots of resources, you're going to leverage those inf- that influence. You're going to leverage those resources this way. How can you be a blessing to other people? How can you be a blessing to the body of Christ? How can you be a blessing to the advancement of the gospel in the world? So we want to enjoy our prosperity with open hands, not a clenched fist. But then there's a second one. Not only did he learn, or a third one. Not only did he learn contentment in the school of prosperity, he learned in the school of, and this may be more familiar to us when we think about Paul, the school of adversity. Paul certainly had his tough days. He certainly had his, he faced his fair share of adversity. Just listen to some of the descriptions that come out of a couple of his other letters in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Listen to some of the things that Paul experienced that he endured. 
He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, To the present hour, we, referring to him and to all his travel companions, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. In other words, life for him got very, very hard as he was seeking to serve Jesus. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, he says, You know, we're serving Jesus, but we're doing so by great endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And then listen to this list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he's not talking about Washington stoning. He's talking about first century taking rocks and chunking at his head. He was stoned, hit with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Meaning everywhere I go, there's danger, it seems. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul endured his fair share of adversity. But yet somehow, some way, he cultivated contentment in the midst of all of that. He learned the secret of facing plenty and having nothing. He cultivated his relationship with Christ above everything else. He got to the point where he said, you know, if I have Christ, I got all that I need regardless of what adversity I'm enduring in the given moment. But if we're honest, we know that our hearts don't beat that readily towards Christ in the midst of adversity. Usually when we hit rough spots, when we lose the job, when a relationship sours, when things get hard for us and we face adversity, we are tempted in that season to demonize Christ rather than to delight in Christ. We're tempted to shake our fist at Jesus and say, Jesus, you don't really love me. Jesus, you don't really want what's best for me. Jesus, if you really were attentive to my life, I wouldn't have found myself in this unpleasant situation. It's not unlike the guy I was talking to one time who came up to me and said, man, I just want a woman in my life. And that's a noble desire, and I affirm that desire. Look, that's a good desire. That, you know, I, I, I'll pray with you that you'll f- find a woman. But then a few months passed by and that desire remained unfulfilled. And so our next conversation was, wasn't, hey, man, I, I really would like a woman in my life. It was, why do I not have a woman in my life? And then the question became months after that, why hasn't God given me a woman in my life? And the adversity he felt and he was enduring in his singleness was causing him over time and experience rather than cultivating contentment in Christ. Believing that Jesus is enough, even then, it caused him to start demonizing Christ. Why haven't God satisfied this desire that I have? And so he started shaking his fist. Eventually, he just kind of threw his standards out the window, connected with a girl who doesn't trust Jesus, doesn't love the gospel, can't spur him on in that direction, and whom he, at this point, can't really spur her on in that direction. It discontent... If we're not able to think well about adverse circumstances in relation to Christ, can lead us to some dangerous places. It can lead us to some undesirable outcomes as it relates to our lives. You see, you and I will never learn contentment until we learn to see that God leverages adversity in our lives, not for our ruin, but for our refinement. We can't learn contentment until we discover that reality. That all of our adversities, God is able to weave together 
He's able to orchestrate their timing. He's able to orchestrate their character. He's able to orchestrate their order. He's able to regulate every aspect of the adversity we endure in this world to bring about good purposes for us, leading to our refinement, not our ruin. This is what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Listen to how he talks about all of his adversities. He says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's a strange way to talk about adversity. He's saying these adversities, all those types of things that I just read to you, they're slight. They're small. And he also says they're momentary. They're not going to last forever. And so he's able to trust that God is going to take these, weave them together, and prepare for us an eternal weight of glory. That God is doing something gloriously good in and through the adversity we are enduring. So in order to learn contentment, we have to wrap our minds to learn to think in this direction in order to cultivate contentment in Christ. This is why Jeremiah Burroughs would describe and define contentment this way. Jeremiah Burroughs, the same guy who said that contentment is a rare jewel, he would say that contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly care. Get this, in every situation, submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly care in prosperity and adversity, in community, every situation. We're resting in this reality. And when you and I begin to discover this, when we begin to cultivate contentment in this direction, that's when indestructible joy can become a reality. Because what will happen is that you will find your joy ceasing to be circumstantial. And you will find your joy fundamental. It will cease to be circumstantial, tethered to your good or bad situations or circumstances, and it will become fundamental. It will rest at the core of who you are. And that's where we want to go, right? That's when contentment is rising within us and it's being cultivated in our relationship with Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that when you face adversity that you can't be frustrated or you can't be disappointed when things go south. But what this does do is it guards you from despairing in the midst of adversity. There's a difference between disappointment and despair. This perspective helps you endure adversity. And yes, be honest about being disappointed, but you're not going to despair. You're not going to go in a direction that God's grace will prevent you from going because you're cultivating contentment in Christ. And all of this drives down to the really core of what Paul is saying in this passage when you get to verse 13 and you get to perhaps one of the most popular verses in all of the book of Philippians. It's one of the most common, it's one of the most popular, but it's honestly one of the ones that is most wildly misunderstood. When he gets to this driving moment in verse 13 and he summarizes his perspective, he summarizes his experience, he says, you know, I can do all things through him. That is through Christ who strengthens me. This is every Christian athlete's favorite verse for some reason. I used to write this verse on the bill of my baseball hat as a kid. Tim Tebow loves this verse. Steph Curry loves this verse. Even Under Armour is trying to piggyback on this verse. I don't know if you've seen the hats he's sporting now, but it says, I can do all things. But then that's it. Like, you left out the most important part of Philippians 4.13. You can't do all things. That's not what this verse means. You see, when I was a kid, I would write this verse in the bill of my hat thinking that when I step into the batter's box, I can hit a home run. That that's what this verse means for me. 
But when you and I look at this verse more closely, when we consider the context of contentment that it is in, what this verse means isn't, Andrew, you can hit a home run. What this means is, Andrew, Christ will hold you together even when you strike out. That's what I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is a verse about cultivating contentment in Christ. This is not a verse about the power of positive thinking. There are divine limitations on your life and there are divine limitations on my life. There are things I dream of doing, but they will never become reality. No matter how hard I quote this verse, no matter how hard, I, how many times I write it on index cards and put it in my car, it, it's not going to, I will never be able to dunk a basketball. I dream of dunking a basketball. It's not going to happen. That's not what this verse is telling me I can do. I will never be able to sing as confidently and as clearly as Bryant Jones. I, I can't do that. I may dream about it. I may pretend I can in my car when I'm by myself and I delude myself into thinking, well, maybe. No, this verse is not saying you can do anything you dream of doing. This, this verse is saying you can endure adversity. You can enjoy prosperity. You can receive help from your community. You can experience all of that through Christ who strengthens you. This is a verse about contentment. This is a verse about enjoying prosperity in such a way that says I'm not going to become self-sufficient. Enjoying prosperity that says I can do so without becoming arrogant. Enjoying prosperity in a way that says my hands are not going to wrap around my stuff so that I cling to my prosperity. This is a verse that says you can endure adversity without wallowing in self-pity. You can endure adversity without dabbling in despair. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. This is what it's getting after. This is a verse that's saying your identity is not attached to your prosperity. And your identity is not subject to your adversity. Your identity is submerged in Christ. Because contentment isn't about more. It isn't about less. It's about being in Christ. Contentment isn't about prosperity. It isn't about adversity. It's about being in Christ. That's what this verse is driving us towards. So we want to submerge ourselves into Christ. That's where contentment, peace, satisfaction, stability of soul is found. And so what this means, as we kind of draw this to a conclusion, is that I just want to encourage you with this thought. There is nothing you can gain in your prosperity. And there is nothing you can lose in your adversity that you do not already have in Christ. So let me ask you, what is it you, that you desire to have? And what do you fear to lose? What do you desire to have? What do you fear to lose? And then why is that? Why do you desire that? Why do you fear losing that? For some of you, for an example, it might be the, a promotion at work. I really desire this promotion and I fear losing my job. Let me ask you, why is that? It's possible because that job means more to your heart than you realize. Because that promotion perhaps speaks to your validation. That promotion perhaps speaks to your value. That promotion speaks to your security. That promotion speaks to your purpose. And if you get that, then you're going to feel good about things. If you lose that, you're going to feel bad about things. But let me ask you, does the security you are seeking or the validation you are seeking or the purpose you are seeking, does, does your ultimate security, validation, and purpose change with that promotion? Does your ultimate security and validation and purpose change if you lose your job? 
Not if you're in Christ. Because in Christ, you cannot gain anything in your prosperity and you cannot lose anything in your adversity that you don't already have in Him. You have value. You have security. You have respect. You have dignity. You have love. You have hope. You have peace. Everything is yours in Christ. This is why Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, if he who did not spare his own son but somehow gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Everything we need, we can have in Christ. And so it's funny that usually the things that we're looking to to be, make us content, the, the stuff in this world that we want to have or that we fear losing, there's always something lurking beneath those things that our heart is really craving. And it is that reality that we have in Christ. So you want love? It's yours in Christ. You want hope? It's yours in Christ. You want peace? It's yours in Christ. Everything is yours in Christ. That is everything that ultimately matters. Everything that is ultimately true and noble and just and right, it's yours in Him. So we want to submerge ourselves into Christ. That's the only way we can cultivate contentment. That's the only way we can check the desire for more and we can check the desire for less. Just plunge ourselves into Christ, believing ultimately we can do all things through him who strengthens us. We can interact with the community in humble, helpful ways. We can enjoy prosperity in a healthy way. And we can endure adversity in a transformative way, all in and through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when I ask the question, uh, what do we desire to have and what do we, do we fear losing? I, I don't know what popped up in the minds and the imaginations of each person in this room, but you do. And so, God, I pray that whatever that is, that our hearts may be thinking we need in order to be content. I pray that you would help us to discover why that is what popped into our minds, why that is sitting in our imaginations. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would counsel us, would teach us, would change course for us so that we would realize that whatever that is, we already have in Christ. Holy Spirit, would you do that type of counseling, life-changing work within us so that contentment in Christ may be cultivated even now. Even now as we begin to sing your praise, even now as we approach the table and partake of the Lord's Supper, would you please enable our souls to feast on your presence in our lives. God, would you minister to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.